The Bradford Exchange presents The Classic Radio Theater with your host, Carl Amari. Countdown for blast off. X minus one. Yes, it's Maxwell House Coffee Time, starring George Burns and Gracie Allen. Richard Diamond, private detective. The Johnson Wax Program with Fibber McGee and Molly. Suspense. It's time once again for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks. Dragnet. We offer you escape. Kraft presents the Great Gildersleeve. Yeah. I'm that man. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. Good evening, friends of the Inner Sanctum. The Jack Benny Program. Welcome, everyone, to episode 47 of the Classic Radio Theater. Each week, the Bradford Exchange and participating sponsors bring you three hours of the Classic Radio Theater, featuring programming from the golden age of radio. This time, we'll hear two true crime episodes of Dragnet, starring Jack Webb. We'll begin after this short break. Dragnet was perhaps the most famous and influential police procedural drama of all time. It dramatized cases of a dedicated Los Angeles police sergeant, Joe Friday, and his partners on the force. Actor and producer Jack Webb took Dragnet to new highs and insisted on realism in every facet of the show. The dialogue was clipped, understated, and sparse, influenced by the hard-boiled school of crime fiction. Scripts were fast-paced, yet didn't seem rushed. Every aspect of police work was chronicled step-by-step, from patrols and paperwork to crime scene investigation, lab work, and questioning suspects. Friday offered voiceover narration throughout the episodes, noting the time, date, and place of every scene as he and his partners went through their day investigating the crime. While most radio series used one or two sound effects experts, Dragnet needed five. A 30-minute episode could easily require 30 separate sound effects. Dragnet came to radio in 1949 and lasted until 1957, making an easy transition to television and films. It's time for the first of two Dragnet radio episodes. On this first episode, a robber is specializing in drugstores, taking money and narcotics. Joe Friday's job? Find him. Time now for the first of two true crime episodes of Dragnet. In this first story, a bartender is paid $500 to kill a nice old man with no enemies. The question is, who wants him dead? Sergeant Joe Friday investigates. Here's the big joke, starring Jack Webb on Dragnet from May 10, 1953. Sound off for Chesterfield. Chesterfield is best for you. First cigarette with premium quality in both regular and king size. Chesterfield brings you Dragnet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a homicide detail. You get a call from a friend who's been offered $5,000 to kill a man. He can't tell you who made the offer. He does tell you that no matter what happens, the man is going to be killed. Your job? Stop it. Years ahead of them all. 
Chesterfield is years ahead of them all. The quality contrast between Chesterfield and other leading brands is a revealing story. Recent chemical analyses give an index of good quality for the country's six leading cigarette brands. The index of good quality table, which is a ratio of high sugar to low nicotine, shows Chesterfield quality highest. Chesterfield quality highest. 15% higher than its nearest competitor. Chesterfield quality highest. 31% higher than the average of the five other leading brands. Yes, Chesterfield is first with premium quality in both regular and king size. Don't you want to try a cigarette with a record like this? Chesterfield. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Monday, February 9th. It was cold in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of homicide detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Captain Lorman. My name's Friday. I was on my way into the office, and it was 7.45 a.m. when I got to room 42. Homicide. That's you, Joe? Yeah. You're in early, aren't you? Yeah, I couldn't sleep last night. Dropped off about 3 this morning, then woke up at 5, couldn't get back to sleep. I got up, made some coffee, and decided to come on in the office. Yeah, I had a little trouble last night, too. Sleep you did? What I mean, yeah. What's your trouble? I don't know. I got up late yesterday morning. I guess that was it. I'll get it. All right. Homicide, Friday. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember. Johnny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When'd you get the letter? Yeah, we'll be right over. Right. Bye. You remember that bartender over in that place on 6th Street, fellow named Johnny? Yeah, is that him on the phone? Yeah, says he's got an offer to make himself a fast $5,000. What for? Somebody wants him to kill a man. Eight ten a.m., Frank and I drove over to John Bronson's apartment. He lived in a new development on Wilshire Boulevard. We checked the nameplates in the lobby of the building, and then we went up to apartment 6B. We rang the bell and waited. Hiya, Joe, Frank. Come on in. Oh, hey, John. Let's say, John. Kind of early to get you guys over here, but I got worried about it and figured I better talk to you. Uh-huh. You want to tell us what it's all about? Yeah, come on out in the kitchen. I got some coffee made. Okay. Yeah, sit down there. I'll pour you a cup of coffee. Fine. Good, thanks. Well, it uh, started last night. I guess it was about 10, 10, 15. Payphone in the bar rang. Kept ringing. I went over to answer it. Fell on the other end and asked for Johnny. Yeah? Told him it was mean, and he hit me with a deal. <laughs> First, I thought he was kidding. What did he say? Well, he asked me if I wanted to make a fast 5000 of course, I told him, yeah. Then he sprung the snapper, said he wanted me to kill this guy, a fellow named Wilhelm Ulrich. You know this Ulrich? No, never laid eyes on him. First time I even heard the name. Okay, go ahead, John. Well, this guy on the phone started to lay it out, told me how he wanted it done. Uh, here's your coffee. Thank you. I asked the Joker who he was. He said it didn't matter. All that counted, he said, was that I knock off this Ulrich guy. Yeah. I told him I didn't know who the man was, that I didn't know where to get in touch with him to kill him. You know, kind of going along with a gag all this time, thought it was a joke. Uh huh. Well, this fellow on the phone said he'd give me all the dope I had to have, said I'd get it in the mail this morning. Yeah. Came special delivery just before I called you, special. Uh-huh. You got the letter, have you? Yeah, I got it in the other room. I'll get it for you. All right, I'll go with you. John, how much have you handled the letter? Well, I opened it up. I didn't know what was in it. Mm-hmm. If I'd have known what it was, I wouldn't have touched it at all, but I didn't know. I looked at it when I found out what was in it and figured I'd better call you. Couldn't see any way to tell who sent it. 
Maybe you can when you see it. Uh-huh. When I saw what it was, it didn't touch it anymore. Uh-huh. Well, let's see here. Money. Yeah, five $100 bills. And what's the letter say? Just a minute. Get this by the edge here. I don't want to... uh, this is Johnny. Here's the down payment. You'll get the rest when you finish the job. The name is Wilhelm Ulrich. The address is 2192 Vine Street, Hollywood. It's written on a typewriter. No signature. That's it. Let me see it, Lee. Oh, you can see it here. First off, I thought the whole thing was a joke. I didn't believe it. You know, I just thought it was some drunk trying to be funny. We get calls like that all the time, guys trying to be funny. Yeah. And when I got this letter, I got scared. I ain't gonna kill nobody. Especially somebody don't even know, not for no 5,000. Did you recognize the voice on the phone, John? No, I don't think I ever heard it before. You got any idea why he'd call you? No, I've been clean. I haven't got a record. Nothing like that. I run a clean place. Never done anything that could tie me up with the rackets. Yeah, we know. Well, maybe I ran a little booze during Prohibition. Not much, just a little. Everybody was doing it then, but I'm clean now. Joe, there's a postmark here on the letters. Mail in Hollywood. Yeah, I saw that. We can check the postal authorities on the mailbox number, find out when it was picked up, huh? Yeah. Time on it here is uh, 11, looks like 11.45 last night. That's yeah. the time. Uh-huh. You sure that you don't know Ulrich, John? Possible that he's been in your bar sometime, maybe, huh? Well, that'd be hard to say. We do a good business. Lots of people come in, I don't know. You know, just come in once in a while. I wouldn't know who they were. They keep quiet, and I ain't getting nosy. Yeah. Well, we're going on back to the office. You'll probably hear from the caller again, Johnny, and as soon as you do, you let us know, will you? You gonna see this Ulrich fellow? Yeah, we'll talk to him. Might be better if you don't say anything about this to anybody, John. Oh, don't worry, I won't. Okay, we'll be talking to you later. You be at the bar? Yeah, I'll be there at four. Okay, thanks a million. No strain, glad to do it. Can't get over it, that guy calling, making an offer like that. I just can't get over it. He should know better than that. Yeah? Sure, yeah, I don't know. Somebody ain't gonna kill somebody they don't even know. We drove back to the city hall and turned the letter over to the crime lab to see if they could find any physical evidence to help us identify the writer. We ran the name Wilhelm Ulrich through R&I and we found no record. A further check on the name and we came up with one possibility. The address listed on the report was the same as the one given in the letter. We pulled the package and checked it. Let's take a look at it. All right. Well, let's see. There's a crime report and a statement here. Report from Georgia Street Receiving Hospital. Well, what's the date on that? January 2nd last year. Yeah. Well, it seems this already got a hold of some poison wine. Uh, wine. Yeah. Hey, wait a minute. Yeah? You remember Joe? He was an old guy. Uh, he was a German. He got a bottle of wine for Christmas and opened it New Year's Day. We worked that case with Lamonica and Galindo. Oh, sure, I remember now. Yeah, we ran down some of the leads for him. They didn't go anywhere. Yeah. That was the one where he didn't know where the wine came from, innit? Yeah, nothing came from it. The leads didn't go anyplace. As I remember, he's a nice old guy. I wonder why somebody's after him. I don't know. Last time, we couldn't find anybody with a motive. Well, there's one someplace. We'd helped investigate an attempted poisoning of Wilhelm Ulrich over a year ago. Somebody'd sent him a bottle of imported wine. Ulrich had opened the wine for dinner on New Year's and had drunk some of it. A short time later, he was seized with violent stomach cramps. He was rushed to Georgia Street Receiving Hospital for treatment. He was then transferred to the county hospital for further treatment. Examination of the remaining wine showed that it had been dosed with a quantity of poison. Fortunately, Ulrich didn't drink much of the poison wine and he recovered. Detectives Joe LaMonica and Danny Galindo had handled most of the investigation. We'd helped them briefly in checking out some of the leads that they'd gotten. We checked with them again on the case. From the crime report, we got a list of the people that the two officers had interviewed. 
We checked with them, and they gave us as much personal information as they could. 1.15 p.m. We drove out to see Wilhelm Ulrich. We found him in the yard digging in a rose bed. No, I can't understand it. I never quite believed that about the wine, sir. Well, why do you say that, Ulrich? Well, I found it hard to believe in my heart that anyone would want to do me harm. I have no enemies. No one that hates me enough to want to kill me, I'm sure of that. Well, I'm afraid you could be wrong about that, Ulrich. The officer said that before. Somehow, though, I just can't believe it. I have nothing anyone would want to kill me for. All of the people I know are my friends. We all get along. Yes, sir. Look at that. Isn't that a beautiful rose? Such loveliness. Mm-hmm. No? I'm sorry, officers. You're mistaken about this. I wonder if we could talk to you in the house, sir. Yes, that might be better. I could make you a cup of hot tea if you'd like. No, sir, thanks. Just the same. Have you officers had lunch yet? Yes, sir. Thank you. Oh, I thought maybe you'd like a sandwich. Just got some liverwurst from a little place downtown. German, excellent food. Mm-hmm. Here, I'll get the door. Just sit down any place. I have to get the dirt off my shoes. Marta would be very angry if I tracked dirt around. Marta, that's your daughter, isn't it? Yes. She comes over every couple of days and straightens up the house for me. Wonderful girl, Marta. I don't know what I'd do without her. Yes, sir. Now, there's a couple of things we'd like to ask you. Certainly. Anything I can do to help. Well, we'd like to go over the information on the report here. Is that from the last time? The time of the wine? Yes, sir. That's right. All right. You just ask anything you want. I've got nothing to hide. All right, sir. We checked the crime report you filled out last year. Now, has anything changed in your family since then? Uh, no. You gentlemen still working on that? Well, yes, sir. We have another matter to discuss here. Oh, uh, there's one thing that has changed. What's that, sir? The part here about uh, me running the business. Mm -hmm. uh, that's changed. I still run it in a way. I still supervise it. But Robert, he actually runs it. Oh, uh, Robert. You mean this name here, Robert Davis? Yes, he's my son-in-law, Marta's uh, husband. He takes care of the business now. He's a good boy. Marta's lucky to have him. How long has your son-in-law been running the business, Mr. Elric? Well, let me see. It's been about eight, nine months. He took over right after I got out of the hospital. He's done wonders with it, wonders. How's that, sir? Modernized it, changed it all around. Had one of those efficiency experts come in and study the people. Time and motion men, I think they call them. Mm -hmm. They come in with a stopwatch and look at the people doing the work and figure out how long it should take them to do a certain job, and then they plan how the job can be done faster and cheaper. Wonderful thing, big changes. Yes, sir. I don't want you to take offense at this, Ulrich, but how are the relations between you and your son-in-law? I don't think I understand. Well, you get along. Do you have any quarrels, disagreements? Oh, no, Robert and I never disagree. I found out that it didn't pay to argue with him. Sir? I found out that it didn't pay. He was always right. Uh-huh. Yes, you see, we had a few arguments when he took over the business about this time and motion study thing. I see. You want to tell us about these arguments? They weren't anything serious. I didn't think that it was a good idea to change. I couldn't see any reason for it. Everything was going good. The business was making money. Everybody seemed to be happy. I didn't want to take a chance disturbing a good thing. You know, the golden goose. Mm-hmm. You want to go ahead, please? Well, Robert said that we were behind the times, that if we didn't do something about it, we wouldn't be able to compete with other people. We manufacture women's dresses, you know. Yes, sir, I saw that on the report. I finally told him to go ahead. I thought that he'd fail. He didn't. Now we compete. More dresses, more money. The employees are happy. They have music, coffee times. They like it. But it's all changed. I don't go down there anymore. I don't care much for it. It's changed. So I just stay home and work in the garden. It's Robert's factory now. Uh-huh. You and Robert haven't had any other disagreements, have you? Oh, no. He's a fine young man, running the business very well. He's a good boy. I'm lucky to have him. Well, how about your competitors, Mr. Elric? How do they feel about this change in the way you operate your business? They resent it? Oh, no, I haven't really got any competitors. The big manufacturers don't care. I don't make enough dresses to bother them. And the other little men are in the same boat with me. 
They're too busy running the factories to worry about me. Mm-hmm. Now, can you think of anybody who might want to do a thing like this? How about that phone call? I told you before, I can't. I find it very hard to believe. Well, we'll have to talk to the people that you know, the people around you. We'd appreciate it if you didn't tell anybody what we were after. If you want it that way, it's so hard to believe. I still think you're wrong. Looks like it's going to rain. Be good for the flowers. It's been dry up in the valley. Farmers need the rain. Yes, sir. Now, you'll go along with us on this thing, will you? Not tell anybody about it? Sure, I'll help. It's all right if I tell my daughter and son-in-law about it, isn't it? Well, it'd be better if you didn't say anything to him or your daughter, not to anybody. But they're going to see you here. They're going to ask questions. They're not stupid. Yes, sir, you could tell them that we were asking about somebody that you employ. How'll that be? What do I say if Robert asks what's about? I, I have no secrets for me. Well, tell him we ask you not to tell anybody about it. Tell him it's police business. Happens all the time. I suppose I could do that, but I don't like it. I don't like it at all. It's lying. Yes, sir, that may be true, but it's the best way. Oh, I guess it's a small lie. I can tell myself that it's a small lie. I will have some policemen come out and watch Mr. Elric until we find the person who's doing this. Do you have to do that? Yes, sir, I'm afraid so. Well, no, I, I don't like that at all. Even worse than the lying. No, no, I don't like it at all. Mr. Elric, I wonder if you really understand that when we ask you not to tell anybody about this, when we want to keep you under surveillance, it's just for your protection. But if what you say is true, if somebody really does want to kill me, if somebody hates me that much... Yes, sir. Can you stop them? We called the office and had a team of men sent out to keep Wilhelm Ulrich under surveillance. His house and his person were to be watched 24 hours a day until we apprehended the person or persons who wanted him killed. We spent the rest of the afternoon talking to the people in the neighborhood. From all of them, we got the same story. Ulrich was liked and respected through the area. All of the local shopkeepers and their business associates told us that he paid cash for everything he bought and that his credit was good. He was active in the local flower club and had twice in the past served as president of the organization. The neighbors confirmed what Ulrich had told us about his family. His son-in-law and his daughter seemed to be devoted to the elderly man and were constantly trying to get him to sell the house he lived in and come to live with them. 6.42 p.m., we returned to the office. Man, it's really coming down, huh? Yeah, it sure is. You got a raincoat in your locker? Yeah, I got one of those plastic kind in the bag. Oh, yeah, I want to get me one of them. I'll get mine. We'll go over and check the son-in-law. You got his address? Yeah, it's a place out on Ivar. Sure was a nice old man, huh? Yeah, he seems to be. So you want to grab my coat, I'll get the phone. Yeah, I'll get it. Thank you. Homicide Friday. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, John. When? Yeah. No, we'll be right over. Right away. You bet. Frank. Yeah? Call from the bartender, Johnny. Yeah? Says he just got another phone call. Person told him that he'd gotten the down payment for the job, and he wanted to know why Ulrich hadn't been killed. Yeah. Guy said if Johnny didn't get on it, the money wouldn't do him any good. Told him to make up his own mind. Uh-huh. Either he makes good on the job or they'll kill him. You are listening to Dragnet, the authentic story of your police force in action. Chesterfield is best for you. Listen to Chesterfield's record. For a full year and two months, a doctor has been making regular examinations of a group of Chesterfield smokers, and he reports no adverse effects to the nose, throat, and sinuses from smoking Chesterfields. Don't you want to try a cigarette with a record like this? Chesterfield. First with premium quality in both regular and king size. Chesterfield. First choice with Young America. And that's from a survey of 274 colleges and universities. Try Chesterfields today. Remember, 
Chesterfield is America's best cigarette buy. Seven ten p.m. We got to the bar on 6th Street. There were only a couple of people in the place. The bartender, Johnny, told us of the phone call that he'd received. He said that the person on the phone had told him that if he didn't hurry up and kill Ulrich, Johnny himself would be taken care of. We called Lee Jones at the crime lab to ask him if he'd been able to come up with anything on the letter. He told us that there was no way of tracing it. Fingerprints found on the letter were those of the bartender. Photographs were taken of the letter, and along with the money, it was booked for further evidence. We'd gotten in touch with the postal authorities, and they said that they'd give us assistance. They gave us the location of the box where the letter had been mailed, and they said they'd try to find out who sent it. We arranged for a stakeout on the bar, and then we called the men at Ulrich's home. They told us that the son-in-law, Davis, and Ulrich's daughter had been there, but that no one else had seen or spoken to the elderly man. 9.32 p.m., Frank and I drove out to check on Robert Davis. We got to the apartment house and rang the bell to the manager's room. Yes? Miss Franklin? Yes, what is it? Police officers, ma'am. We'd like to talk to you if we could. Oh, well, I suppose it's all right. Come on in. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very much, ma'am. This is my partner, Frank Smith. My name's Friday. What is it you wanted to see me about? Oh, we'd like to talk to you about one of your tenants, please. Oh? Which one? I bet I can guess. Ma'am? It's about that couple on the fifth floor, isn't it? The Radcliffs. It's them, isn't it? No, ma'am, it isn't. We'd like to talk to you about a Robert Davis and his wife. The Davises? Yes, ma'am. Why? Well, never thought it. Should be the Ratcliffs, the way they carry on. The Davises. I'd never have thought it. What do you want to know about them? Well, it's just a routine investigation, ma'am. Can you tell us how long they lived here? Well, see now. It's been almost six years. They've been in the building, yeah. Yeah, six years, anyway. I haven't always lived in the same apartment, though. Ma'am? When they moved in, they was in a little apartment on the second floor, living room, and a pull-down bed, little bitty place. And then they moved up to the sixth floor, two-bedroom, nice place. Nice people. The Davises, oh, I'd never have thought it. Do they have any close friends in the building, would you know? Well, not Mr. Davies. He's kind of the quiet type. Never has much to do with anybody he keeps to himself. Mm -hmm. Now, Mrs. Davis, that's a different thing. She's a living doll. She's nice to everybody and so sweet. Never had a harsh word for anybody. Always a smile. I think Mr. Davis thinks he's too good for anybody. You always seem kind of snooty. Yes, ma'am. Do you ever have any arguments with anybody in the building that you might know of? Well, he's had a few arguments like everybody else does. Like I said before, he thinks he's too good for anybody. He thinks he's better than anybody. He's got no right to either. Ma'am? Why, well, he owes half the people in the neighborhood money. Way behind his bills. Owes me a couple of months' rent. Never seems to be able to pay anybody he owes. I talked to the milkman. Owes him for a month back. Every time he asks for his money, Davis tells him to come back and stop hounding him. Can't understand it. Seemed like such nice people when they moved in. Uh, two years ago, that's when the trouble started. Uh -huh. It was our understanding that he had a pretty good job. Is that and right? he has. Uh, works for his father-in-law, manages some kind of a factory. Uh, dresses, I think. Oh, but that isn't it. He makes enough money. He just spends it faster than he makes it, that's all. I think he gambles. Why do you say that, ma'am? Oh, he's always going off on some kind of business trip. At least that's what he says it is, but I know different. Yes, how's that, ma'am? Well, he'd come back from one of those business trips once. Cab pulled up, and uh, it just happened that I was standing out in front. A driver got out and gave him the bill for the cab all the way from the airport. Almost six dollars. Well, anyway, when Mr. Davis got the money out of his pocket to pay the cab bill, a chip fell on the sidewalk. He didn't think that I saw it, but I did. A cab driver did, too. Well, what kind of a chip was it, ma'am? Uh, well, you understand I'm not a gambling woman, so I wouldn't know. But the cab driver, he knew. 
Oh, you just betcha. He knew right away. He picked up the chip and handed it back to Mr. Davis and said something about being in Las Vegas, kind of kidding, you know. Yes, ma'am. Well, I've seen Mr. Davis get upset, but never like that. He grabbed the chip away from the cab driver and told him to mind his own business. Said that he'd had a chip a long time, that it didn't concern the cab driver. He was real mean. Uh-huh. And then at night, well, the argument that he and the missus had... I never in all my days heard anything like that. What happened, ma'am? Well, uh, you understand that I just happened to be in the hall. I was making sure that the lights on the floor were all on. Those bulbs are always burning out, and I was checking them, you know. Yes, ma'am. Well, anyways, I hear this argument coming from the Davis's apartment. Mrs. Davis is telling how she isn't going to stand for it anymore. Mr. Davis better settle down and get to work and stop this foolishness. She didn't come right out and say what foolishness, but I could tell. I could tell. It was his gambling, that's what it was. Yes, ma'am. Is there anything else that you could think of that you could tell us about the Davises? Uh, No, I don't think so. I'm kind of surprised, though. I don't like him, but I never thought that he'd have the police after him. Well, we're just conducting a routine investigation, Miss Franklin. Oh, now, you don't have to play cagey with me. I know about you, policeman. You and your routine investigations, you ain't fooling me. You want him for something. Now, what is it? Can you tell me? Ma'am, it's just police business, just routine. We'd appreciate it if you didn't say anything to anybody about us being here. Oh, sure. I'll go along with you. I won't tell a soul, not a living soul. Thank you very much, Miss Franklin. I'm going to leave you our card. We'd appreciate it if you give us a call if anything comes up. Uh Uh-huh. Um, Michigan 5211, is that right? Yes, ma'am. You just ask for the homicide division. It's written down. All right. You just bet I will. Now, I'd be glad to help. I'm just glad to. All right, fine. Uh, One thing, though. Yes, ma'am? Are you sure there ain't nothing that you want those people on the fifth floor for? The Radcliffe's? From the manager's office, we called the Ulrich home. We talked to Mr. Ulrich. He told us about the visit that afternoon from the Davises. He said that he hadn't told Robert Davis anything about the threats on his life. We went upstairs and talked to Davis. We told him that we had a serious matter to discuss with him, and we asked him to accompany us down to the city hall. I don't know what you're talking about. I told the police everything I know about this a year ago. I don't know anything about it. wish I could help, but I can't. You know, this got me worried. Well, if you haven't done anything wrong, you got nothing to worry about. I haven't done anything wrong. In here. Mm. Go ahead. Mm. All right. Now tell me what this is all about. Frank? Yeah. You want to check the office, see if we got any answers to the calls this afternoon? Right. You got a cigarette? Yeah. Help yourself. Well, let's get to it, huh? I gotta get home, get some sleep. I got a rough day tomorrow. This won't take very long. How do you get along with your father-in-law? All right, why? Like to know? Well, I don't see how that concerns you, but you ask, so I'll tell you. We get along fine, me and the old man. We get along just great. Does that make you happy? That's not the point. Anything? No, nothing new. You go over to Las Vegas much, Davis? Not much. Why? How often would you say you went over there? Maybe a couple times a year, not any more than that. When was the last time? What's so important about when I was in Vegas last? You guys spent a little more time finding out who's trying to kill my father-in-law, less time asking questions that don't make any sense. You'd be doing a better job. What can you tell us about somebody trying to kill your father-in-law? All I know is what he told me this afternoon. What did he tell you? Not much. Said something about a bartender, something about a phone call. Did he tell you who the bartender was? No, just that it was someplace over on 6th. All right, Davis, come off it, huh? What do you mean, come off it? You want to tell us why you did it, or do you want us to tell you? Did what? I got nothing to tell you. I don't know what you guys are talking about. 
We talked to your father-in-law this morning. We told him that we'd gotten a report that his life had been threatened. We didn't tell him how it happened. We didn't tell him where our information came from, so he didn't know. All right, so maybe I got it someplace else. Oh, wait a minute. You couldn't have. We didn't talk to anybody else. Well, I heard it someplace. I don't remember, but I heard it. We checked around, found out you gamble quite a lot. You're a steady loser. You owe a lot of money in town, don't you? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Now, I think we can make you for the threat on Ulrich's life. I don't think we'll have any trouble at all. You had the motive. You had the opportunity. First thing in the morning, we'll check with the factory. We'll see if you made a withdrawal of $500. We make that, and you got big trouble. You figure you're going to be able to do that? We think so, yeah. We'll get your father-in-law down here and ask him what he told you this afternoon. Find out if he did tell you about that bartender, about the bar on 6th, about the phone call. You know, it doesn't look like there's going to be too much trouble making you for this. Save your time. What do you mean? You don't have to go through that thrash. I did it. I tried to have the old man knocked off. Were you the one who sent him the wine last year? Yeah. That's when it started. I started to gamble. Lost a lot of money. Couldn't pay it back. No way to pay it back. Guys I owed the money to were leaning on me. I had to pay them off. Had to. I can only think of one way, get rid of the old man. Didn't you get a pretty good salary out of working for him? Yeah, pretty good, but it didn't go far, not far enough. I tried to win it back, make good on the losses I had. I couldn't do it. The more I gambled, the worse it got. I just couldn't do it. There wasn't any other way. No other way. I decided to kill the old man. It's the only way. Can't you see that? It's the only way I could get clear. Yeah. I figured if I could get rid of the old man, I'd have everything fixed. Everything would be okay. I guess it worked out all right anyway. What do you mean? Well, there's nothing in the book they can throw at me. He's still alive. I didn't kill him. Who got hurt? You did. Well, how do you figure? I didn't kill him. You're going to jail for trying. The story you have just heard is true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On June 18th, trial was held in Department 89, Superior Court of the State of California, in and for the County of Los Angeles. In a moment, the results of that trial. And now, here is our star, Jack Webb. Thank you, George Fenneman. I want to thank all of you for your interest in Dragnet. Thanks very much for your letters. We really appreciate them, and we'll try to keep around right giving you the kind of a show that you like. I want to thank all of you, too, who have switched to Chesterfields. I know you're going to like them, and I know you'll find they're best for you. Now, you folks who haven't tried Chesterfields, I'd like you to pick up a carton tomorrow. Chesterfield. It's a great smoke. <laughs> Robert Walter Davis was tried and convicted of attempted homicide. He received sentence as prescribed by law. Attempted homicide is punishable by imprisonment in the state penitentiary for a period of not less than 20 years. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Technical advisors, Captain Jack Donahoe, Sergeant Marty Wynn, Sergeant Vance Brasher. Heard tonight were Ben Alexander, Vic Perrin. Script by John Robinson. Music by Walter Schumann. Hal Gibney speaking. For a million laughs, tune in Chesterfield's Martin and Lewis show Tuesday on this same NBC station. And sound off for Chesterfield's. Either regular or king size, you'll find premium quality Chesterfield's much milder. Chesterfield is best for you. Chesterfield has brought you Dragnet transcribed from Los Angeles. Now, new Fatima has the tip for your lips. 
Fatima tips of perfect cork, king size for natural filtering, Fatima quality for a much better flavor and aroma. So remember, new Fatima has the tip for your lips. Fatima, see how smooth they are. Remember, Fatima is made by the makers of Chesterfield, Liggett and Myers, one of tobacco's most respected names. Tonight, it's adventure with Barry Craig on NBC. That's Dragnet with the Big Joke, starring Jack Webb from May 10, 1953. Also in the cast, Ben Alexander and Vic Perrin, with George Fenneman and Hal Gibney announcing, as heard over NBC. All of the classic radio shows we present on this series are direct from the master recordings. I have more than 100,000 original radio episodes under license from the owners and estates, and we make them available via digital download or on CD through our Classic Radio Club. By joining the Classic Radio Club, you'll receive 10 superior-sounding classic radio shows sent directly to you each month, along with detailed liner notes and photos of the stars. You'll receive your first 10 classic radio episodes for only $1, and you can cancel at any time. To learn more about the Classic Radio Club, log on to ClassicRadioClub.com. That's ClassicRadioClub.com. I'll have another true crime episode of Dragnet for you after this break. Welcome back to the Classic Radio Theater. I'm your host, Carl Amari. This time, a clothing store has been burglarized and the ex-convict assistant manager is suspected. Here's The Big Bid, starring Jack Webb on Dragnet from January 26, 1954. to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Dragnet is brought to you by Chesterfield, made by Liggett and Myers, first major tobacco company to give you a complete line of quality cigarettes. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a burglary detail. You get a call that a clothing store in Hollywood is suffering losses. The value of the stolen property is over $12,000. There's no lead to the identity of the thief. No pattern to his M.O. Your job, get him. Today, you'll hear these three words everywhere. Chesterfield's for me. The cigarette tested and approved by 30 years of scientific tobacco research. Chesterfield's for me. The cigarette with a proven good record with smokers. And first cigarette to have such a record. Chesterfield's for me. Chesterfield gives you proof of highest quality. Low nicotine. The taste you want. The mildness you want. The Chesterfield you smoke today is the best cigarette ever made. And best for you. the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, 
You will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Wednesday, June 3rd. It was hot in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of burglary detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Captain Bernard. My name's Friday. We were on our way out from the office, and it was 9.56 a.m. when we got to 1592 Vine Street, Dodd's men's store. Excuse me? Yeah? One if you can tell us where you find Leonard Dodd's. Yeah, uh, that's him. Pull it back here in a blue suit. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I don't know how it happened, honey. No, I just came in this morning, and I noticed the stuff was gone. Hmm? Well, a whole shipment of suede coats. Haven't even been unpacked yet. Yeah, about two dozen of them. Well, white with a button-down collar. Yeah, I called the cops and the insurance company. Yep. Well, about 12,000. Well, a couple of customers just came in, honey. I'll call you back. Yep. Well, don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Goodbye. Yes, sir? Can I help you, gentlemen? Mr. Dodds? That's right. Police officers. This is Frank Smith. My name's Friday. How do you, you do, doing? sir? You reported a burglary this morning? Yeah, are you guys from Hollywood? No, sir. We're out of Central. I didn't think I'd seen you around here before. You want to tell us what happened? Yeah, come on back to the store. When did you first discover the theft? Well, this morning when I came in, I went back here to unpack some new merchandise, and I found most of it gone. Here, I'll get the door. Now, this is our storeroom, and we got a shipment from the east. The cases are kept here until we get a chance to unpack them and check the invoices. I see. Was all of the stolen merchandise taken from this room? I'm not sure about that. I do know that a shipment of suede jackets and waistcoats was in here. It's gone now. A couple of cases of shirts, too. The only way I'd have of knowing if they took anything from out in the store itself would be to make a complete inventory. Mm-hmm. What do you estimate the loss at? $12,000. When was the last time you saw the merchandise in here? Yesterday afternoon. About what time? Well, I'd have to guess at that. I'd say about 3 or 3.30. How many doors are there to the store here? Just the front one. One in the back. Opens into an alley. What if we could see the rear door? Mm-hmm. Sure. Back this way. One of the first things I thought of, too, but it was locked. You opened the door this morning, did you? Yes, I... Found the stuff gone, then I checked the door. It was still locked. Uh-huh. You have an alarm system in the store? Yes, didn't go off last night, though. I see. Here's the door. You can see for yourself there's nothing wrong with the lock. How about it, Joe? No, there's no signs of it, Jimmy. Well, that's what I thought, too. I looked pretty close. Couldn't see any sign of where they got in. How about windows? Hmm? Possible they got in through a window? No, I'm sure of that. Only two we've got are in the tailor shop. Here. You can see them up there, a good ten feet and barred. They couldn't have gotten in there. All right, we'll have our crime lab take a look. Who has keys to the place? Well, I've got one. Yes, sir, but who else? Well, they're just me and Al. Al? Yeah, Al Baker. He's sort of the assistant manager. Whenever I'm not around, he takes charge of things. Can we see him? Well, you can when he comes in. Listen, I don't want you to give him any trouble. I'd trust him with anything, anything at all. I don't want you asking him a lot of embarrassing questions. All right, sir. How long has he worked for you? Oh, I guess it's been about five years. I don't think I could run the place without him. Sure wouldn't want to try. I see. Besides this baker, how many people do you have working for you in the store? Three others full-time. During rush periods, I call in extra help. You give us a list of their names? Yes. But you can be sure of one thing. What's that? Isn't anybody who works at the store did this. You seem pretty sure about that. Well, I know my people. All of them have been with me for a couple of years. I trust them all. I noticed that you're doing some remodeling here. How about the workmen? Possible one of them took the merchandise? Mr. Friday... Do you know how much $12,000 in clothes is? Yes, sir, I have an idea. The both of you couldn't carry it in one trip. Not in a couple of trips. Whoever took those clothes was here a long time, and he worked hard getting them out of the store. Yes, sir, but about the workmen? It couldn't have been one of them. 
None of them have keys to the place. We have to open up to let them in, and they leave before we close. They tried to get the things out of the store. One of us would have seen it. Couldn't possibly have been one of them. Frank? Yeah? You want to call the crime lab? Sure. Can I use your phone? Yes. It's on the counter in front of the store. I just don't understand it. Sure? This doesn't seem to be any way they could have gotten all of the clothes out. No way at all. Well, they must have found one. 10.38. The crew from the crime lab arrived and went over the place. The whole store was checked, and all entrances and exits of the store were checked for fingerprints. Both the front door and the rear exit were examined, but there was no mark of a jimmy. The windows on the second floor were gone over, but the locks on them were secure, and there was no apparent way they could have been used to remove the stolen merchandise. We talked to the other clerks in the store. From them, we got approximately the same story that we'd obtained from the store manager. They verified that the merchandise had been on the premises at 3.30 p.m. the day before. None of them could say for certain that it was there after that, however. While Frank was checking with the members of the crew from the crime lab, I called the names of the employees into the record bureau for a check. Yeah, that's Baker, B-A-K-E-R. WMA, 46 years, 5 feet 10 inches tall, 156 pounds. Right. What? No. No, no visible marks or scars. Right. Joe, I got something for you. Okay, if you'll check the names, I'll give you a call later. Right. What do you got? Come on upstairs. I got talking to Lee, and I figured from what they found, the merchandise had to be taken out in the daytime. Lee goes along with that? Yeah. The way the doors look, if they were open, somebody used a key. Mm-hmm. He thinks like we do, that somebody took the cases out, planted them, then picked the stuff up last night. Well, what do you got up here? Window that opens out on the roof of the next building. I'll check the lock. It hasn't been tampered with. No. Come on. Climb up. No bars on this one, huh? Uh-uh. Over here. Right there behind the air shaft. Now, what is it? Take a look. Uh-huh. Shirts. And this one, suede coats. Is this all that was taken? No. Manager says it's about half. No sign of the rest of it, huh? No, must have taken that last night. Figures the thief will be back tonight for the rest. Well, it'll be here. Mm-hmm. So will we. We asked the manager of the clothing store to keep watch on the cases of stolen merchandise while we made arrangements to place a stake out on them. 12.14 p.m. The crime lab finished their investigation and Frank and I talked with Lee Jones. He told us that he checked the fingerprints found on the doors and windows, but that all of them had been eliminated as they belonged to the members of the store staff or to the workmen. He told us that they'd found an impression of a tire print in the dirt of the alley next to the building where the stolen clothing had been found. He went on to say that they'd checked and had found that the truck belonging to the plaster contractor had tires of the same type that had left the impression. The canvas was made of the tenants in the building next to the clothing store, but they could give us no new information on the possible identity of the thief. 3.52 p.m. We checked back with the record bureau on the list of names of store employees. Yeah. When was that? Uh-huh. How long? You get out clean? Mm-hmm. Nothing on the rest of them, huh? Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Anything? Yeah. They checked the names, came up with one possible. Yeah. The assistant manager, Al Baker. Uh-huh. He's done time for burglary. The record bureau had come up with the information that Alfred Roger Baker had been arrested in 1943 for burglary. He'd been tried and convicted on three counts. He'd spent a term in the state penitentiary at San Quentin, and he'd been released. Since that time, he apparently had led the life of an exemplary citizen. 4.07 p.m., Frank and I took him to the office of the clothing store to talk to him. Sit down, Baker. Sure. What's this all about? You don't think I had anything to do with this burglary, do you? How many times have you been arrested? 
Why do you ask that? We just want an answer. You seen the record? We've seen it. You know without me telling you. We'd like to hear it from you. I was arrested once. I did the time. I'm clean since then. I thought when you did the time and they let you out, you didn't know anybody anything. Yes, that's right. Well, then what are you guys hopping on me for? I just work here. I mean, just because I did a hitch for burglary that I had anything to do with this. We didn't say you did. Well, you sure acting like I did, bringing me in here talking about how I was arrested. Sure acting like you think I had something to do with this one. Well, you look good for it. Well, how do you figure that? You got the only other key to the door. Look, I don't like to bring this up. Maybe you bright cops haven't thought about it, but who says Dodds couldn't have done it himself? What do you mean? Well, he's in trouble, big trouble. This would be an easy way out of it. All right, you tell us. Well, all the stuff is insured. Be pretty sweet for him to lift the merchandise, collect on the insurance, and then sell the stuff, too. He'd come out real good. That's the way you got it figured, huh? I'm not trying to figure it anyway. All I know is that you guys are trying to wrap something around me that doesn't fit, and I want no part of it. Come right down. It must be a couple of guys' work here could have done it. Well, the way we got it, the thief used a key. Well, that brings us right back to Dodds. Well, if he's in trouble financially, then why is he doing all this remodeling? He hasn't got much choice. He's got to brighten this place up or he's going to lose what business he's got. You check into him. You look it up. You'll see what I'm talking about. It makes a lot more sense than you hauling me in here. Can you account for your time last night? From when? From the time you left here. Yeah, I can give you every minute. All right. Go ahead. I left here at 6.30. That's the time I always leave. Who was here when you left? You mean who locked up? That's right. Leonard. He always locks up, always. Where'd you go after you left? Went up to the corner and had a beer. That's like always, too. Anybody in the bar know you? Yeah, the bartender and the waitress. They'll vouch for you? Sure they will. All right, go ahead. After I left there, I drove home. What time did you leave the bar? About 7.10. I had one beer, smoked two cigarettes, put a nickel in the nut machine on the bar and went home. I left at 7.10. Sure wish I knew you were going to want to know all this. I'd have been more careful about remembering. I forgot how many nuts I got from the machine. I'll take a wild guess and say 14. I got no way of proving that. You'll have to take my word for it. What time did you get home? About 7.50. Where do you live? Out in the valley. Traffic's heavy going out at the pass that time, and I took me 10 minutes longer than it usually does. You prove when you got home? Yeah, I can. How? Talk to my wife. We got a time clock on the wall just as you come in the door. I punch in and out. The time will be there. What about last night? I was home all night. I had dinner, sat around to watch television, went to bed. You didn't leave your house, huh? No, not from the time I got home last night until I left this morning. Pretty bad, isn't it? How do you mean that? I can prove every minute of it. Look, you get off my back, cop. You start looking around. You'll come up with a lot of guys who had a lot more chance and a lot more reason to heist that stuff than I do. That won't be hard because I haven't got any. You sit tight and I'll show you who sold that stuff. Huh? Wait a minute. Where are you going? Just over to the desk. I want to show you something. What? You'll see. Hold it just a minute. Now you show me what you want and I'll get it for you. Hey, you cops, you never learn, do you? Open the top drawer. This one? Yeah. All right. I'll open that one. All right, what do you want? Uh, a folder right there. This one? Yeah, that's the one. Put it up on the desk. All right. Come on, open it. Yeah. Now take a good look at the reason the stuff was stolen. What is it, Joe? Bills. There's nothing in the store that's paid for. Take a look at them yourself. Here. Look here. Past due. Please remit. Your credit is important. Overdue. Past due. Go through the rest of them. They're all like that. There's no place in the country anymore that'll extend any credit to Dodds. Not one. You're looking for somebody who had a reason to steal the stuff? Well, there's your answer. You talk to Leonard Dodds. He's got the reason. Come in. Joe. Frank, see you a minute. I'll take it. Okay. Telling you, you got to lean on somebody. You lean on Leonard Dodds. He's the one. Don't come around here bothering me. Joe. Yeah. You know what he got? He might be telling the truth. Huh? Stuff on the roof. Yeah. It's gone. You are listening to Dragnet. 
the authentic story of your police force in action. Meet Peter Lynn Hayes and Mary Healy, America's favorite husband and wife comedy team. They are typical of smokers everywhere who are saying, Chesterfield's for me. Mary says, I've smoked regular-sized Chesterfield's for about seven years. Guess that ought to prove how I feel about Chesterfield's taste and mildness. Peter says, Chesterfield's for me, too. As far as I'm concerned, King is the only size. And like Mary says, Chesterfield is the only cigarette. Either way you like them. I'll bet you'll find Chesterfield is best for you. Yes, smoke America's most popular two-way cigarette. Regular and king-size Chesterfield. The best cigarette ever made. And best for you. With the removal of the remaining packages on the roof, our main opportunity of catching a thief was gone. We questioned the people in the store about it. From them, we learned that the manager, Leonard Dodds, had brought the cases of clothing into the store himself. We talked to him, and he offered as an explanation the fact that the insurance company wouldn't like him leaving a supply of expensive suede coats up on the roof. He went on to say that catching the thief was our business, that we were not to interfere with his running of the store in any attempt to apprehend them. We tried to question him regarding the accusations made by the salesman, Al Baker. He said they were ridiculous and that we should know better than to listen to the accusations made by an ex-convict. He went on to say that he resented the questions we put to him and that if we intended to continue, he would have to get in touch with his lawyer. We contacted the office and made arrangements for a stakeout to be set up on the roof of the building next door, and then Frank and I returned to the office to check further on Leonard Dodds. We checked with his bank, and we found that he had several notes on the clothing store. The head of the loan department told us that Dodds' payments had been irregular, and that at the time, he was overdue on one of the notes. We contacted the insurance company and found that Dodds had made a claim on the stolen merchandise that morning and had requested payment as soon as possible. We turned a list of the stolen articles over to pawn shop detail and asked them to see that the information would get into the hands of the second-hand dealers in the city. 10.15 p.m. Frank and I filled out the log and prepared to leave the office. You about ready? Yeah, I'll be right with you. I got it. Burglary Friday. Yes, ma'am. Hmm? Well, I'm not sure. No, the officer that handled the case isn't here right now. I wonder if I could take a message. Yes, ma'am. He'll call you when he gets in. All right, uh-huh. Yes, all right. If you'll wait just a minute, I'll transfer to the main jail. No, the main jail. They'll probably be able to tell you. Yes, that's right. Just a minute. Hold on, please. Would you give this call to 2949, please? That's right, the bail clerk. Thank you. The woman wants to know how much it's going to cost to get her husband out of jail. Yeah. I got it. Gregory Friday. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. We did. Yeah. Well, when was that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay, we'll wait here. Right? Bye. Well, looks like we got it made, maybe. What do you mean? Radio car out in the Westlake District just picked up a couple of kids. Uh -huh. Both of them were loaded down with clothes. Yeah. Label on them is Dodd's clothing. The radio car officer had told me on the phone that he and his partner, while making a routine patrol of the area, had spotted two boys walking down the streets carrying large quantities of clothing. When they were stopped, the two suspects were unable to account for the clothes, and they were not able to tell the arresting officers where they'd gotten them. In checking the pair out, the officers had called burglary detail, and we'd gotten our first concrete lead to the thief. 10.47 p.m., the two suspects arrived at the office. Their names were checked through R&I, and they were both found to have misdemeanor records listing petty theft and attempted burglary. One of them, Walter Kramer, had been convicted on burglary charges and had been sentenced to Preston School for Boys. 
He was at the time on parole. While the other boy waited in the squad room, Frank and I questioned Kramer in the interrogation room. How old are you? 18. Where do you live? You know that already. What are you asking me again for? I told the other cop, gave him all the information. Where do you live? 2574 Brandon Street. You want to tell us where you got the clothing you had when you were picked up? You're smart cops. You figure it out. You on parole now? No, I got out clean. Are you still that way? That depends on how you read this one. Where'd you get those things? I found them. You expect us to buy that? I don't care if you buy it or not. It's the truth. You're pretty heavy, aren't you? I've been around. That time up at Preston didn't do you much good, did it? You'd be surprised what I learned up there. Not what you were sent there for. That depends on where you're sitting. You were picked up carrying a load of stolen clothes. You want to tell us where you got them? You tell me. Now, come on, kid. Where'd you get the clothes? You going to play it that way, are you? There ain't any other. Where were you yesterday? Starting when? From when you got up. I got to tell you all that? We want to hear it. Pretty dull. All right, go ahead. Well, I got up about noon. You got a job? Yeah. Where? Around. What do you do? Nothing. I'm a philosopher. I study people. I just sit around all day and study people. How do you live? Stay with my folks. They pick up the tab. Go ahead. With what? What you did yesterday. Told you. I got up about noon. Had some breakfast, then went over to Harry's. That's the boy you were picked up with? Yeah, I went over to his house. Sat around and watched the television. How long were you at his house? Mm, maybe six. Sat around and talked philosophy. Talked and watched the old movies. What'd you do then? Left and went out to study people. Where'd you go? Went down, played a couple of games of pool, had something to eat. And after that? Went out to a movie. You got any way of proving that? Sure, talk to Harry. See your alibi? Yeah, you talk to him, he'll tell you. Now, you may not know this, but he's in the theft as deep as you are. I got some information for you, cop. Neither one of us is in on it at all. All right, get your coat. Where you taking me? City jail. You gonna book me? You called it. How about Harry? Well, how about him? He going too? Yeah. What charge? Suspicion 459 P.C. Burglary? That's right. Come on. You mean that stuff is really stolen? That's right. You're telling me right? Yep. It ain't true. Well, you tell us about it. No, I mean, Harry and me didn't steal the stuff, at least not the first time. What do you mean by that? Well, we stole it, yeah. You got us cold for that, but not the first time. Well, where'd you get it? From a garage, that's the truth. We stole the stuff from a garage. Where is the place? I'll show you. There's a lot more stuff there, a lot more. Clothing? Yeah. Whose garage is it? I don't know. Harry and me were walking around out there, and we saw this truck pull up. Guy got out and then loaded some packing cases. When was all this? Last night. The way the garage looked, though, it wasn't the first time. Place was loaded. A lot of shirts, coats, suits, all kinds of things. Harry and me figured that we might as well help ourselves. But we didn't steal the stuff originally, not the first time. What's the address where the garage is? I don't know. Up on Shortale Avenue, near the lake. All right, we take you up there. Will you point it out for us? Sure, I'll show you. I want to see him get his, get it real good. What do you mean? Imagine having a garage full of stolen things. Terrible, that's what it is. Is that right? Sure. The important thing is that you know that we didn't steal it the first time. You've got to believe that. We didn't steal it the first time. Is there really a difference? Twelve fifteen a.m. We talked to the suspect that had been picked up with Kramer. He gave us substantially the same story that we'd gotten from the first boy. They both agreed to take us out to the garage where they'd found the stolen merchandise. Before we left the office, we put in a call to the clothing store, but there'd been no report from the stakeout on the roof. The two suspects directed us to drive out towards Silver Lake. We took the freeway out to Glendale Boulevard and turned right. We drove out to Loma Vista, and then we turned right again. The boys directed us up the hill and then onto a side street. We went about a half a block farther before they pointed out the house to us. We drove down the street and parked the car. Frank and I and the two suspects walked back to the house and into the rear of the yard. The two-car garage in the rear of the building was unlocked. We went in. Scattered around the place, we found several large packing cases of clothing. 
The labels on them were from some of the most exclusive men's stores in the city. There was no question about it. This was the plant for the stolen merchandise. Frank stood by the back door of the house, and I went up on the front porch and rang the bell. Yeah? You're Martin Hetman, aren't you? Yeah, do I know you? My name's Friday, police department. Oh, yeah, I met you over at Dodge. What is it, some more questions? Yeah, a few. Kind of late to come around, isn't it? Well, maybe a little. You're just going to turn in. Can you wait till the morning? I could come down to the police department. No, I'm afraid we're going to have to talk tonight. Oh. Okay, come on in. Thank you. Anybody else in the house? Just my wife and the kids. Where are they? Upstairs. They're all asleep. I told you I was just going to turn in. Mm-hmm. That garage out back, does that belong to you? What? The garage out in the back of the lot. Is it yours? Yeah, it's mine. Why? What do you use it for? <laughs> what do you use a garage for? I keep the truck there. Well, where's the truck tonight? I left it at a service station down on Glendale Boulevard. Having a grease new oil change. Why? Anybody else use the garage besides you? No. Everything in it belonged to you? You mind if I call my lawyer? Well, you can do that from downtown. You arresting me? Yes, sir. You found the stuff, huh? We found it. That a cigarette? Yeah, here. There's a match. I guess I should have gotten it out of the garage sooner. Mm. Figured on it first thing in the morning. When you talked to me this morning at Dodds, I should have known. Should have known right then. I didn't think you'd figure it this way. All right. Come on, get your coat. Yeah. Just let me finish the cigarette. You sure had it figured. Going real good. Want to hear about it? All right. Well, I'm a plastering contractor. You know that. Yeah, you told us that this morning. Well, I bid on the jobs. All the contractors submit bids on how much we'll do the work for. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I always got in with a low bid. Used to drive the other contractors crazy. Never could figure out how I could come out on it. You see it, though, don't you? Well, you tell me. Well, you see, if a job would cost me, say, uh, $3,500 to do, I'd put in a bid for $2,500. I always get the job, and then I'd steal the other thousand of merchandise, see? Mm-hmm. That way, I could come out and nobody get hurt. What about the store owner? I weren't sure. Only buddy in the middle was the insurance company, so you see, nobody really got hurt. You about finished with that cigarette now? Yeah, just about. You're pretty lucky, you know. Is that right? Yeah, sure. This was going to be the last time. I figured that after this, I'd be able to go it straight. Got my equipment all paid for, money in the bank. Figured I could go it straight. This was going to be the last time. Well, you were right, weren't you? Hey, you mind telling me something? What's that? How'd you tag me? How'd you find out? We caught a couple of kids breaking into the garage. They'd stolen some of the clothes. They were picked up, and they pointed the place out to us. Kids? That's right. How about that? That's really terrible, isn't it? What is? Oh, this younger generation. I had legitimate reason. I was just trying to come out. Wasn't anybody going to get hurt my way. But those kids. I hope you're going to put them away for a long time, little thieves. Come on, get your coat. Let's go. That's just awful. No sense of honesty at all. I sure hate to think of what the world's coming to. You want to tell me something, Hetman? Well, sure. What do you want to know? Well, you said you just stole the difference between what you agreed to do the job for and what it really ought to be. I got it right? Yeah, just the difference. Well, you hit the Dodge store pretty hard, didn't you? $12,000 worth? Well, you see, that was a kind of a deal. Well, I didn't get anything on the last job, not a thing, so I had to make up for it, you see what I mean? Yeah. I had to come out some way. Nobody would expect me to take a complete loss, would they? I wouldn't know about that. I just wanted what I had coming. Yeah, well, you're going to get it this time. The story you have just heard is true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On October 17th, trial was held in Department 89, Superior Court of the State of California, in and for the County of Los Angeles. In a moment, the results of that trial. Now, here is our star, Jack Webb. 
Thank you, George Fenneman. Friends, the next time you buy cigarettes, I wish you'd give our Chesterfields a try. Now, that's all we ask. Just try them, because these cigarettes do a better job of selling themselves than anything I could say. Either way you buy them, regular or king size, I know you'll like them, because they smoke mild and they're really satisfying. Join the millions of smokers who've made Chesterfield America's most popular two-way cigarette. And when you do, I'm convinced you'll agree that Chesterfields are best for you. Martin April Hetman was tried and convicted of burglary in the second degree four counts and received sentence as prescribed by law. Burglary in the second degree is punishable by imprisonment in the state penitentiary for a period of not less than one or more than 15 years, or by imprisonment in the county jail for not more than one year. Walter James Kramer and Samuel Arthur Nicholson were tried and convicted of burglary in the first degree. Burglary in the first degree is punishable by imprisonment in the state penitentiary for a period of not less than five years. This is the year that the March of Dimes has started its polio prevention program. And your dimes and dollars are going to determine just how far this program is carried out. Join the March of Dimes and give extra. Give extra for victory over polio. You'll be glad you did. just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Technical advisors, Captain Jack Donahoe, Sergeant Marty Wynn, Sergeant Vance Brasher. Heard tonight were Ben Alexander, Harry Bartell, Vic Perrin, Herb Ellis. Script by John Robinson. Music by Walter Schumann. Hal Gibney speaking. Watch an entirely different Dragnet case history each week on your local NBC television station. Please check your newspapers for the day and time. Chesterfield has brought you Dragnet, transcribed from Los Angeles. This is it. Save thousands of filter tip smokers who have switched to L and M filters. At last, the filter tip cigarette with plenty of good taste. And a pure, non-mineral filter. You get effective filtration because only L&M filters use alpha cellulose. Entirely pure and harmless to health. It's the light and mild smoke. Much more flavor. Much less nicotine. This is it. As Rosalind Russell puts it, L&M filters are just what the doctor ordered. Today, buy L&M filters. <laughs> Listen now to Barry Craig, next on the NBC Radio Network. And that's Dragnet with the Big Bid, starring Jack Webb from January 26, 1954. Also in the cast, Ben Alexander, Vic Perrin, Herb Ellis, and Harry Bartell, with George Fenneman and Hal Gibney announcing as heard over NBC. 
Stick around. I'll give you our lineup for episode 48 of the Classic Radio Theater after this short break. Next time on episode 48 of the Classic Radio Theater, brought to you by the Bradford Exchange, we'll hear two drama episodes of The Lives of Harry Lime, starring Orson Welles, so don't miss it. To reach me and to learn more about the Classic Radio Club, visit ClassicRadioClub.com. Be sure to tune in to our next show. Thanks for listening. <laughs>